Take your Bibles and let's look to 1 Peter today. Towards the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter, if you're without a Bible this morning, there's one in a seat located in front of you, and I hope that you'll pick one up and follow along with us as we're looking to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're working through a series of messages about our purpose here at Meadowbrook, what we do and why we do what we do. And uh, this particular passage will help us focus on equipping the saints of God for missions and ministry and worship, of course, all to his glory. Well, let's focus in on verse four, chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. I'm going to just break the passage apart and we'll pause along the way to talk about it for a moment. The end of all things is at hand. It's tough to read that statement and not have a visual in your mind of a clock moving backwards as if it is ticking towards an end, a countdown. Factoring in current events today, many believe that the end is imminent. I don't know about that, but I do anticipate the coming years to be challenging for people of Christian faith. Not only is much of what we believe and know to be true coming under attack, but I believe there is a greater enhanced attack coming for us for believing it and for speaking that truth. Is the end at hand? If I told you that I believe that the return of Christ is soon at any moment, I would be like thousands of other preachers who have been preaching for 50 generations and all of them thinking the same thing, that surely the Lord is returning soon. And they are all absolutely correct. The end is at hand. So what is Peter writing when he mentions that statement the end of all things is at hand. Well, maybe we should first consider what he is not talking about. The end of time does not come like a combination lock of current events such as numbers that are falling into a sequen sequential place before the return of Christ comes. He's not talking about that. The end of the time, the end of the world is not contingent upon the U.S. news cycles. Christians would do well to have an eternal perspective that is based on God's Word and the discoveries of God's Word rather than watching Fox News or CNN. They are not indicative of the end of time. Peter's statement, the end of all things is at hand, is not a prophetic one. That's not what he's talking about. It's a statement of current reality. It's already the end of all things. And it has been that way for humanity for the last 2,000 years. The word end in the Greek New Testament is telos, and it is not necessarily a chronological reference. He's talking here about communicating consummation. He's talking about an achievement, something that is completed with a result in mind. That's why the Amplified Bible translates the beginning of this verse as the end and accumulation is near. So what is at hand that is accumulation of God's desired achievements? It is none other than the glorious return of Jesus Christ and the completion of our redemption. 
So we need to understand time and events as the Bible frames it to be. The Old Testament has been moving towards the first advent of Christ in a very humble way. The New Testament and following is moving throughout time and beyond for the second advent, the glorious appearance of Christ again. So Peter is wanting us to understand that the consummation of God's redemptive plan is at hand and it concludes with the return of Christ. Therefore, we are living in the final stages of history. We are living in the last days. Again, he's not talking about a chronological term he's talking about a season and that season began with the resurrection of Christ and it will conclude with the coming again of Christ his second coming so we, we really should not be wrestling with will Christ return today or will he return tomorrow or will he return someday in the future as much as we wrangle with the notion what should I do today what should I do tomorrow knowing that the time is at hand the end of all things is coming to conclusion it's he is returning if I were to put that in an image, it might look something like this, that we are living in the last days. The last days begin with the resurrection of Christ. They conclude with his second coming. And so you and I find ourselves somewhere on that line. Does it matter when he returns? No, what matters is what are we doing knowing that he is returning? What is our life knowing that the days are coming to conclusion? Does it matter that we know the exact day? No, what matters is that we live resolutely and diligently knowing these are the last days. Now let me ask you to consider a few things. One, postponing salvation in Jesus Christ when the day is at hand is foolishly risky. I recognize that many times people say, you know, one day I'm going to do that. One day I'm going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. One day I'm going to be born again. Why would you put that off? Knowing that his day is at hand, why put that off? God does not promise us today, much less tomorrow. So maybe you're here, and you're here because you are moving towards faith in Jesus Christ. Don't put that off. Postponing that day of salvation is incredibly risky. Don't do that. Or maybe it's procrastinating your service to the Lord and his church while knowing that the day is drawing to a near. That's irresponsible. Why are you going to postpone serving the Lord these days knowing that he's coming again? What do you have to offer? What do I have to offer the Lord except for our service, except for our worship and our obedience to him, our diligence to him? What else could we offer him but those things? So why would we postpone those things in which we can offer him. How about serving today? Encouraged by the Lord's coming again, knowing that he wants to find us faithful and will reward us in our faithfulness, we wouldn't put, postpone serving him. What will you offer him on the day in which you see him? If you're saved in Christ Jesus, your faith is in him. By his grace, he has brought you into the kingdom. What is it that you're going to offer him? Well, you offer him your service you offer him your obedience you offer him your worship so today has great impact for eternity the things that we do today the things that we determine not to do today have great significant impact on our eternity 
What will you offer him if you have been procrastinating serving him during these days? So I would rethink that. I regret the times in my life that I ever thought, you know, when I get my finances in order, then I'm going to start giving. Man, I regret that kind of procrastination. I certainly regret the times that I've thought and maybe other people have thought, uh, I'm going to get involved one day. Maybe when the kids get older and life isn't so hectic. Why procrastinate that? When that service can be an offering unto the Lord. Or, or maybe some are procrastinating being active in the church, thinking, you know, if they would just get rid of some of those hypocrites, then I might just go. Can I remind you that the Lord said the devil will always be infusing hypocrites into the real church? It will always be that way. Or whatever the procrastination is for you why do that why procrastinate your service when that is your offering to the lord or maybe you're putting personal convenience over being a good steward of god's grace and if that is true then you have mismanaged god's resources i'm just going to tell you from our perspective it's heartbreaking when people who are talented in various ways choose not to use their talent because it's just inconvenient to do so or when teachers won't teach because they don't want to be tied down to an obligation or people don't serve because they're just too busy or others don't give because they're spread too thin it's heartbreaking because they have exchanged the eternal rewards for temporary desires in other words they have foregone God's eternal reward that is continuous for trillions upon trillions of unending years for the convenience of these fleeting life moments that is like a nanosecond in comparison to the eternal days ahead why do that whatever resource talent ability or influence or experience that God has given to you start using it and applying it today to his kingdom because he has given you insight that the end of all things is at hand let us do so with urgency and with a calculated decision to say yes to him maybe promoting the kingdom of the world is what's going on in your life if you're promoting the kingdoms of the world, my friends, then you are neglecting your call as an ambassador for Christ. What rhetoric are you associated with? Now, folks are engaged in a whole lot of rhetoric. What is that? What are you known for? Are you known for the love of Disney? Are you known for the, uh, known for the love of Alabama football or Auburn football or certain other sports or teams? What is it that you're known for? What is the rhetoric that comes out of you? Be careful not to waste the opportunity to have influence on people with things that are going to be burned away in the end. When you could be engaging in that which is eternal and have an impact eternally in people's lives and certainly the reward of Christ that will be offered to us on that day which eternity is before us. Many people think that uh, today is important. But my friends, today is going to prove futile in comparison to eternity. Why chase after the things and cling to today what is offered to us when we can hold on to that which is eternal? Some people are enamored by politics, but frankly, I'm just going to say that Trump days or Biden days are nothing in comparison to the day of the Lord. Oh, don't promote the things of the world promote the things of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of God today 
is not to be tomorrow's regret. Today is meant to be tomorrow's reward. So serve and worship and give and live faithfully unto our God. 2021 Christians must be serious-minded, not passively or apathetically living as if the end of all things is not at hand or the day of the Lord is not approaching. What Peter wants us to know is it is at hand, and we ought to be serious-minded about that. So I encourage us not to be distracted, not to be divided, not to be discouraged. The end of all things is at hand. Now when the end comes, God will reveal his glory in Christ Jesus and he will reign eternally. So let's just frame this up. If you're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and then verse 11 does a couple of things. They're like bookends for us. The end of all things is at hand, he says. And then verse 11 is the end is with the glory of God. So in between those two statements, we find how do we live in a glorious way knowing the end is at hand. And so if we just walk through verse 7 through 11, we'll see how it is that God is telling us we ought to be living these days. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So when we have a proper understanding of the return of Christ, then we will have correct determinations and emotions and thoughts. In other words, expecting Christ's return will motivate us to think and to live and to emote differently. So he says, be self-controlled. And be sober-minded. Self-controlled means, means that we are not just given to the whims of our sinful flesh. We control the flesh. The spirit overrides the desires of the flesh. The spirit wins out when we're self-controlled. Christians ought to have self-control. Now, no doubt the temptations are going to continue, but God has given us the power to resist sin's lure and sin's impact with self-control by the Holy Spirit. It's part of the fruit by which we live in the expression of the Holy Spirit. Self-control is. If you're self-controlled, it's because you are governed by the Holy Spirit. And if you find a lack of self-control, it's because the Spirit of God is not dominant in your life. And so he says, last-minded people, people that recognize we live in the last day, are self-controlled and sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means to be thinking clearly. It means that we're not looking for the escape. We have the reality before us that the Lord could come at any moment, and the consummation of our relationship with him is complete. The culmination of our salvation is found in that time. And so because that is forever before us, we live sober-minded. We're not looking for the escapes. We're not looking, oh, it's been a rough day. Let me take this or let me have this so that I can have a, an escape. No, no, no. We want to be sober-minded. We want to be clear in our thoughts. We're not looking to work for the, through the week to get to the weekend. We're not constantly longing for the time that we can just escape and, and get to someplace else. No, no, we're sober-minded people knowing that the end of all things is at hand and the Lord could come back at any moment. Knowing that makes us sober-minded and self-controlled. Look what he says in verse 8. Above all 
Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I forgot to mention, by the way, that when we are self-controlled and sober-minded, it affects our prayer life. If we're not self-controlled, if we are given to the whims of the flesh, that affects our prayer life. If we're not sober-minded, knowing that the Lord is coming back and we think differently because of that, it affects our prayer life. Let me flip that around. You want to know if you're really sober-minded? You want to know if you're really self-controlled? Take a look at your prayer life. If your prayer life is lacking or even non-existent, it is a proof that you are not self-controlled or sober-minded. Well, that just kind of settles, doesn't it? That has a little bit of a barb to it, doesn't it? That's called the conviction of the Spirit of God. And aren't we grateful for that? Because the joy and the blessings and the reward come in obedience to Christ. And because he wants us to have that sweetness of fellowship with him and the wondrous rewards of that fellowship with him, he gives us barbs like that to say, test your faith, test it by your prayer life, see if you're self-controlled, sober-minded. And then verse 8 goes into another expression of last day's living. He says you ought to be loving one another. Have fervent love for one another. This kind of love covers a multitude of sins. The church should be known in the last days as loving one another, loving each other. Jesus said that we ought to love to the measure in which he has loved us. That's a big deal, isn't it? The measure in which Christ has shown love to us, we ought to be demonstrating that love to one another. He went on to say that all people will know that we are his disciples if we have that kind of love for one another. So the world around us is divided. The world around us is filled with hate. But in this place, among this people, we ought to be united and filled with love. And in these last days, as things are continuously breaking apart and the division is certainly manifesting itself in numerous ways and it will get worse, let the church be all the more bright with the love that we have of Christ for one another. And he says that kind of love is certainly given to one another that it even covers over a multitude of sins when they sin against you when you sin against them let love be abounding don't be distracted by the chaotic brokenness and the divisiveness of the world and can i just encourage you don't be drawn into that don't get pulled into the divisive arguments in the world. Nobody is going to ask you of your faith or if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ by your rants and postulations that you put on Facebook or Twitter. You will be known by your love, not by your arguments. What are you arguing for? Why put your opinions out there that are so utterly worldly? When Jesus says, oh, I want you to be known as loving. I want you to be known for truth and love. So genuine and earnest love for one another is attracting to people. It's just attracting. People are longing for truth and people are longing for love. And the combination of those two coming together in the life of the church is what attracts genuine faith. So be the attractant. Then he says in verse 9, show hospitality. 
to one another. We're talking about how do we live in last days, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. Well, in the first century, hospitality was a major, major issue because it was not uncommon for people to lose their job, their sources of income, even their housing. And it was a necessity that others would bring people into their homes and be hospitable to them, provide meals for them, provide places for them to seek refuge and to have refuge. And he says, show that kind of hospitality, bringing people into your lives and do it without grumbling. I know it's not gonna be so easy, but just do it without grumbling. Go out of your way for others. I made a big mistake this past week. Uh, we had been in Birmingham on Thursday evening, had to go for a, a late afternoon uh, doctor's appointment. It was one of those annual deals. I knew it was coming. Uh, went down, had the appointment, uh, ate dinner with one of the kids and came back into town. And I had about, uh, I don't know, 80 miles to empty your car show you that that can be a very risky thing can't it so I thought I, I'm pretty sure I can make it to the steel exit no problem and about Asheville I noticed that my miles to empty was just over 40 and I thought surely I can make it to Asheville I mean to to steel but then there was a major wreck on the interstate and we pulled up GPS, and sure enough, we were about five miles out from steel. And we're sitting still. And then we would creep and crawl for a little bit. My odometer never, speedometer never got over five miles an hour the entire time. Now I'm calculating. <laughs> okay, I'm getting about 20 miles per gallon, and I'm going five miles per hour. Will I have enough? And I'm watching that needle tick down and that number tick lower into the 30s. And now I'm beginning to think along with Kay, not doing it out loud to begin with, but then it got to a panic point where I'm thinking out loud, who can we call? When we push this car off the side of the road, who can we call? Now as the Lord is my witness, I thought of my kids, that they probably would say no, <laughs> I'm kidding Lord is my witness I thought of church members I didn't think of anybody else I thought of you some of you <laughs> knowing that you would come and bring fuel to us and sit in a line that would take you over an hour to get to where we were it was you you know why because many of us are filled with love to show hospitality without grumbling. And I'm encouraged by that. What a, what a witness for Christ. What a witness for you that you would show that kind of grace. That's what the Lord wants us to have for each other as we're living in the last days of the, 
The end is at hand. Show that kind of love and hospitality. But now I'm just moving forward in this passage. Look at verse 10 because this is really what I was wanting to focus on, but I'm going to move through it fairly quickly. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be long glory and dominion forever and ever amen so here's some distinctions for our christian service at meadowbrook first of all we operate from the gifts of god our service in the kingdom of god and his church is not just by natural abilities and skills and interests and talents oh yeah that's true that's the way god has shaped us psalm 139 is clear about that jeremiah is clear about that but that's not what he's talking about here he's talking about god is manifesting himself through each of us in supernatural ways ways that can be identified at least one that can be identified and God is saying we operate from that measure of gifts from the manifestation of the spirit through us to the church as a whole by God's grace we are given gifts by which we are called to serve so when you hold back your service you are holding back the expression of the Holy Spirit to the life of this church and when you serve in your giftedness, you flush forward the manifestation of the Holy Spirit to the life of this church. And I say thank you. What a joy that is to see so many people express the giftedness of the Spirit of God. We use God's gifts to serve others rather than ourselves. Listen, if you've, got, if you've got a gift that God has given to you, it's not for you, it's for the church. I'm just going to put it bluntly, you are God's gift to the church. And sure, you might get some encouragement out of that, and sure, you might be blessed out of that, and you might even enjoy it, and I'm sure you will. But the richest blessing belongs to those who are receiving your gift you're just receiving the way you're expressing God's giftedness to other people. And I would say as a church family, we ought to thank people who are using God's gifts in the right way. If your life group leader is gifted by God to teach, why don't you tap them on the shoulder today and say, thank you for using that gift in the right way. Man, do you ever bless me. And when someone is giving Thank them for using that gift in a way that is good for us as a faith family. And when someone is serving, when someone's hospitable, when somebody is well organized, thank them for using God's gifts in a way that you're blessed. We serve as managers of God's grace. I'm just talking about distinctions that are in this passage for us in these last days. We serve as managers of God's grace. So ministering isn't task-oriented as much as it is managing God's grace. I have to remind myself and our staff periodically that we are not project managers. We are equippers. We're to manage God's gifts. We're to manage God's ministries. We're to do it in a measure that extends God's grace. And so we are managers of God's grace. It is the manifold grace of God that is 
administered through the life of his church. God is extending his grace through you. So when we understand that, we would never sit back and just sit and say, okay, serve me. No, no, no. We recognize that God has given his grace through us and we want to manage that well, so we distribute it. We are the distribution centers of God's grace. We are not warehouses of God's grace. We're the distribution center. Let it come in and let it go out at all times. And then another distinction of Christian service at Meadowbrook is that we function at a level beyond ourselves to the measure of God. His oracles and his strength. So the, what, what an incredible illustration that is. If you are speaking God's word, speak it as the oracles of God. And if you are serving, serve to a measure that is the strength of God. That's way beyond us, isn't it? And when we get that, whatever it is that God is calling you to do, do it to the measure in which God gives you strength to do it. When we get that, it is, an, it is a wonderful expression of God's goodness. We don't have to have a, I can do it the best I can attitude. No, it goes way more than that. I can do it to the measure of God's strength or God's ability or God's word that has been entrusted to me. It goes way beyond us. And then finally, in a distinction, we minister so that God is glorified through Jesus Christ. So serving for God's glory is the greatest motivator that I know. And it challenges me to give the best that I have and beyond. Because I want to give in a measure that is unto God's glory. I want people to walk away after my exercise of gifts and say, glory to God. And I want all of us to do that. Because we recognize the time is at hand, the end is at hand, we want to live in an expression of God's glory. When you sing, do it so that people glorify God. When you serve, do it in a way that God is glorified and people give glory to him. When you're at open hands this afternoon, minister in such a way that people walk out breathing about the glory of God. Let them identify who Christ is through your gifts of service. Let it be to that measure. Don't just do it in your own strength and ability. If we're going to do it in our own strength or ability, we might as well join the Kiwanis or the Lions Club or whatever. No, we don't want to do it to our strength. We want to do it to the strength of God, to the measure of God so that Jesus Christ is glorified. And that sort of draws me to the conclusion here. Everyone, everyone is a minister Everyone is a missionary and everyone is a worshiper. Not just the people on platform, not just the people on the field that we commission. Every one of us, not just the person with pastor or brother or sister or front of their name, everyone is a minister. That's why at Meadowbrook we seek to connect people to Christ and His church. We grow them. As disciples, to be disciplers, and we equip them for service. I'm talking about missions and ministry and worship to the glory of God so that Christ is glorified. So, by God's perfect design, from creation to eternity and throughout eternity, we were made to serve. Our greatest joy and the fulfillment that we have in life, the greatest 
substance of our being, the greatest expression of significance is when we serve. Now the enemy, my friends, will twist that and he'll make it where you desire to be served more than you serve. But I'm telling you why he's doing that. He wants to rob you of the joy of Christ. He wants to discount God's reward in your life. And he wants you to demonstrate worldliness rather than Christ-likeness. And so he will beckon to you that you would be served. But from the beginning of days, when Adam was first placed on the planet, throughout eternity, our lives are greatly expressed when we serve. Even Christ our Lord did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down. I hope we cling to that. That as we understand the day is at hand, the Lord could return at any moment and this salvation of ours will be full. Let us be rich in service during these days. Those who stay true to God's design will be blessed today and eternally. They will reflect the life of Jesus well who came to serve. The reward will be great. And I can tell you how it will begin when we enter into heaven, it will be that the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Did you hear what he's saying there? The reward is that we will be able to serve at even a greater measure. And he says that will bring us great joy enter into the joy of service why don't you start today are you a singer are you a worshiper worship with us in the choir you play an instrument join the band you teach begin to teach here at Meadowbrook you love to serve other people we have dozens of ways that you can serve like to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're eager to do so let us partner you with people that you might serve in that way want to help people in benevolent needs we can help you get connected in open hands or way of the cross or another benevolent ministry let us help you to do that one of the ways you can reach out to us is by just doing a simple email to info at mbchurch.com. Or maybe you're a texter. Text the word MBNEXTSTEP to 33222. Or come down the aisle way and tell one of the people who will be standing down front, I'm ready to serve. Or just stop by the office any day and let us know you're ready. Let's go to the Lord in prayer join me father from the beginning of days you have equipped us and called us to serve and we bless you for that we find our greatest significance in life is when we are serving as christ served we thank you for equipping us in every way needed to be able to carry out that which you have called us to do shaping us uniquely giving us talents and abilities and skills and then in our salvation, giving to us the indwelling of your Holy Spirit that he might reveal himself through gifts supernatural. Now pause in that prayer for a moment and just confess to the Lord if you've been holding back the management 
of God's grace. For Lord, where we have been self-serving, where we have been not self-controlled or sober-minded, where we have sought after our own things rather than the things of Christ that are eternal, forgive us, I pray. And as you forgive us, we receive your forgiveness for you are faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Lord, we pick up the servant's apron. We pick up the hammers. We pick up the tools of whatever it is that you've called us to. We take on the compassion of Christ. We walk with his servant-mindedness. And we say, oh Lord, set us on the right path, I pray. And Lord, flush us full with your Spirit's control that we might do things to your glory and we might serve in a way that is beyond our own ability, serve to the measure of Christ. And we thank you in advance for the rewards that you will give us both today and eternally. We bless you for the lives that will be transformed, for the people who will find their needs met for how you'll bring us in the midst of your great plans. We pray this in Jesus' name. The name that is above all names, but the name that reminds us of what a true servant is. He laid down his life that we might have his life. He became poor that we might have his riches. In the name of Jesus, we pray.